Welcome to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. The podcast that covers all things about humans, technology, technology. and particularly the bit in between. And welcome to this episode. Today we're delving a bit more into the medical domain. As you've seen over the previous episodes, we've, we've been talking about the medical domain more and more, and particularly about the human factors um, impact that we could have upon it. In previous episodes, we've dis- discussed topics like just culture, communication, people taking human factors from one domain to another. And today's guest embodies all of these issues and combined them with a really fierce drive to make a difference. Many of you within the human factors domain may have heard, heard about Martin Bromley and his late wife, Elaine Bromley, as it highlighted many on as it's highlighted on many courses and presentations. But there are many people listening outside of this, from outside of human factors and from outside the outside the health domain, who may not have done so. Which is why I'm hugely grateful to have Martin here on Twelve or Two, not only to hear about the continual work he is doing, but also to highlight that no matter what your role, what you have a contribution to make, and your organisation should be doing all that it can to empower you to do so, because it could save lives. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Martin to the podcast. So welcome, Martin. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Thank you very much, Barry. Good to be here. So just to get into a bit of background, we're going to talk about the work you're doing um, in how you've established the Clinical Human Factors Group. But before we get into that, can we step take a step back and tell us, you know, firstly, who you are, you know, what is your current role and what do you do on a day-to-day basis? Well, I'm going to give a very short answer to that. Basically, my the current role that's of relevance to, to the conversation today is I'm like a promoter. I'm like a promoter of human factors and ergonomics. Uh, I'm like the PR department, basically, for human factors science in healthcare. That's what I do. And uh, you know what? The interesting thing is I've been doing this stuff for free, basically, for the last 17 years. So you mentioned you've been um, in doing this for, for 17 years. Um if you could take us back, you know, why did you get involved in it in the first place? So, yeah, and as you've already alluded to, um, this goes back to my late wife, Elaine. But actually, I'm going to take it back even further and something that I very rarely discuss. So it's about 30 years ago now that I was learning to fly as a private pilot. And very, very early in my flying lessons, I was only maybe seven hours in or something like that. Uh, my instructor decided that despite a day of very bad weather, very low cloud and drizzle and mist, that we were going to take off and do some flying in cloud. Now, if anybody knows anything about aviation and learning to fly, that's a very advanced lesson that you don't do until much later in your training. But he decided the weather was rubbish, so let's make the most of it and off we go. So we went off into this weather and uh, we ended up being able to descend back out of the weather but pretty low to the ground. And my flying instructor, realising that we were still some way away from where we were going to land, picked a a well-known route that he was very used to and chose to fly very, very low to the ground, basically to stay clear of clouds so we could get back to our airfield and land. Now, I didn't really understand much of what was going on, but I also knew where we were. And I knew that between where we were and where we were going to land was an aerial farm. In other words, a massive uh, field basically full of extremely tall metal structures uh, held up by guide wires. And the irony was that he himself was highly experienced and the road that we were flying close to went past this aerial farm. It was a road that he would drive to every day to work where he was an air traffic controller and he would steer military planes away from this aerial farm. So we had this situation where we're flying along at low level. I don't know what the hell's going on, 
and he seems oblivious to something that surely would be obvious to him mm. that he's about to fly us through an aerial farm and you know i i didn't know what to say i didn't know how to intervene or anything and it was only pure luck that when we flew through that aerial farm we didn't hit anything right and it was only as we were halfway through and this very tall metal structure appeared out of the cloud and went past the right wing that he suddenly realized where he was and what he'd done wrong and he climbed back into the cloud and most of it's a very long story but the point was that i was in a situation here where we'd almost been killed and it was by someone who was an expert who knew exactly what they were doing who was utterly familiar with where he was and he simply forgot that this major structures this major this field of aerials was there mm -hmm. and so i'm left thinking how on earth did that happen yeah. really for me that was the start of my interest if you like in the world of human factors because it was saying hang on a minute if i'm going to be a pilot I get the fact that I've got to learn about how engines work and wings work and all the technical stuff and the electrical stuff. But actually, what I really need to understand is the human, mm -hmm. the human that I'm flying with and the human that's me and trying to work out how can Earth can I make sure I don't screw up and I stay alive. And that was a, an incredibly valuable lesson for me that has lived with me to this day. Now, we then move on to 2005. And by this time, I'm an airline pilot mm -hmm. flying for a major UK airline. And, um, you know, I've I've actually been involved in training crew resource management in aviation yeah. at this point in my career as well. And uh, my then wife, Elaine, um, she has some sinus problems, nothing major, but it requires surgery. She goes into hospital for a routine operation and she doesn't wake up an emergency occurs when she's anesthetized uh, and i'm told they've done all the right things but it just didn't work out she ends up unconscious she ends up in intensive care and 13 days later she's dead and and i didn't again you know i didn't understand what had happened i was told everything had been done as well as it could have been it was one of those things and i got that but i also knew that in aviation we investigate not to blame but just to learn yeah and and i i persuaded in the end the hospital where it happened for an investigation to take place and what they brought out was what they referred to as communication errors right now, yeah. i didn't understand at the time but what that to them what communication errors were were all the things they didn't really have a language for they didn't have a language around non-technical skills they didn't have a language around culture they didn't have a language around hierarchy and the issues that might cause and in essence what we know is that when elaine was anesthetized problems started to occur uh, the anesthetist started to try and um, deal with the problem using some pieces of equipment to intubate um, members of the an extended team came in to help and call for help and what happened is the three doctors or consultants in the NHS, so these mm. are senior doctors, highly experienced, gathered round Elaine, attempting to intubate. They're using a variety of bits of kit, etc., to do this. Um, but they have become fixated on right. intubation as being the solution. And meanwhile, there's a team of nursing and anaesthetic assistant staff around them who are doing a few things and getting ready to, to deal with this. 
but by the time we're 10 minutes into this procedure, it's, it's deteriorated to what is referred to as a can't intubate, can't ventilate. So this is the equivalent of, for example, a fire on an aeroplane that won't go out or a fire on an oil rig that won't go out or something like that. Yeah. So yeah. It's a really big deal and it requires very quick intervention around two possible strategies. Now, one of the strategies wouldn't have worked for very various reasons. Um, but, but what we have here is a technically competent team, a very experienced team with many years experience. Uh, the three doctors are gathered around Elaine attempting to intubate, uh, but they seem to have become fixated. They seem to be struggling to use some bits of equipment because it doesn't come naturally to them. They seem to be trying different ways of intubating when actually the protocols would suggest surgical access to the airway, putting a cut in the throat. Yeah. Now, the, the protocols, and they had a very clear process for dealing with this that had been trained by the Difficult Airway Society, they didn't even refer to. They didn't even talk about it being a difficult airway. Right. Meanwhile, the, the team around them are starting to make suggestions because the team has already that the, the more junior people have already called for a tracheostomy set to be brought to theatre very quickly within six minutes of this whole thing starting. Um, uh, one of the nurses, uh, she brings the tracheostomy set. She tells the doctor she's got it and they simply ignore her, probably under the fixation. They don't even yeah. see she's there. Another one of the nurses comes in, sees Elaine's colour, she's blue, so she's hypoxic, sees the vital signs and realises this is serious. She calls intensive care, she comes back in, she says to the doctors, there's a bed available in intensive care. And to quote from the inquest that took place later in the year, they look at her as if to say, what's wrong? You know, you're overreacting. And in essence, what we have here is a team of doctors who persisted trying to intubate to the point that Elaine was completely starved of oxygen for over 20 minutes. Now, Barry, you don't need to be a doctor to know that if I starve you for 20 minutes of oxygen, this is not going to be good. No, no. This is not a good outcome. Yeah. Uh, but the, the doctors seem to be in their own world there um, the, and it was subsequently discovered at the inquest that basically the leadership broke down. Nobody was sure who was in charge. Uh, prioritization failed them. Decision making became fixated, probably under the stress, into one solution without considering any other option. Um, and the communication dried up. But when you look at the team around them, the, the junior people who who perhaps wouldn't be expected to intervene they could see what was happening they knew what it meant and they did try to tell the doctors what was going on and what needed to happen and in fact two of them in the inquest said that we knew exactly what needed to happen but they just weren't able to broach the subject because of the yeah. culture the hierarchy etc so bearing in mind you know my background in aviation uh, yeah, I, you know, when I was learning to fly for the, as a private pilot, when I was learning to get my airline license, we had to take exams in what we called human performance and limitations. Yeah, yeah. It's not a very appropriate title, actually, because it actually covers the whole range of HFE, the exams. Yeah. About the design, about the reach, about the, the how the displays are set up, as well as some of the non-technical skills and that. But when I'm actually in the flight deck, you know, 99% of my conversations are around non-technical stuff, around culture, mm -hmm. about managing hierarchies and all that sort of thing, about briefing out threats and errors and mitigating them. 
So, so when I then looked at what happened in Elaine's case, yes, there were some equipment issues, which we can come back to later, but the reality was that this was a situation where there were many non-technical skills, i.e. behaviours, that were either inappropriate or simply weren't displayed. Right. And that was what was referred to in the report as communication. And, you know, I've, I've got two young children at this point. It's 2005. I'm trying to get my life back together. Um, the investigation is taking place and I've got a lot of things to think about. But every so often the thought goes through my mind, what happened? You know, yeah, yeah. So when the investigation came out and the inquest and I went through that. Um, then it was a case of saying, okay, I kind of feel like I need to understand healthcare and try and work out what 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 do they know about this mm. stuff. And over the next couple of years, I got my life back on track. I I um, got back into my flying role, and I'm still flying today. I'm a training captain and a CRM trainer for a major UK airline. Um, but I I was talking to people like James Reason. So the, the sort of people I was talking to were people like James Reason, to Rona Flynn, the, the late great Helen Muir at Cranfield and characters like that. And I was just saying, you know, I don't know a lot about human factors and ergonomics, but what's your experience in, in healthcare? And I was talking to clinicians as well and saying, what do you know about this stuff? And most of them were saying, no, nothing at all. But there were a few yeah who knew something who'd really invested heavily in it and really by the time i got to 2007 i thought well gosh there seems to be an awful lot of people that i've come across but they're in small parts of healthcare. so a couple of surgeons down in cornwall an anaesthetist up in sterling in scotland you know you'd have rona flynn working out of aberdeen james working up in manchester you'd have a couple of organizations in london who were doing work on human factors within healthcare, mm -hmm. but nobody was talking to each other because they didn't know they existed yeah when you when you look at the literature at the time around safety particularly in healthcare, um it it was i mean forget human factors and ergonomics just safety was regarded as like a niche interest yeah. A guy I knew wrote a book about patient safety. He was a surgeon and uh, it was reviewed. Uh, and one of the reviewers started their review by saying in writing as a junior doctor with no special interest in patient safety. <laughs> now, that's wow. a bit like that's a bit like me saying to you, Barry, as you get on board my my plane saying, well, welcome on board, everybody. I'm a junior pilot with no special interest in safety. Uh, <laughs> I think you'd find a stampede of people wanting to get off very quickly. I was going to say, I would go back to the terminal. Exactly. But, but at the time, it was actually quite a normal thing to say because it was regarded as some kind of niche academic interest. And that's yep. safety we're talking about yep. here. And when you talked about human factors and ergonomics, you know, 99% of doctors would look at you and say, I have no idea what you're talking about, but there's probably some academic somewhere who's written a paper about it, but I don't know what this stuff is. Yeah. And so, so I kind of got all, I kind of, I had a, a list of maybe 90 people at this point of, of, you know, ranging from people like James Reason through to a hospital chief exec who was quite intrigued by this stuff. And I basically emailed everybody and said hey why don't we get together for a day in london and have a talk about this and so i got in touch with the department of health and said this is what i'd like to do will you help by sponsoring a room and they said no 
So I thought, well, screw it, I'm going to do it myself. Yeah. So in the end, actually, they did turn around the day before and said, don't worry, Martin, we'll cover the costs. But we got about 45 people in a room and basically said, give us a quick 10 minute presentation on what you're doing. So these were human factors experts. These were doctors. These were just interested bystanders. Mm-hmm. Plus organizations that were delivering uh, non-technical skills training but but as external to healthcare. and we sat for a day we talked about it and I said okay what are we going to do now and they kind of said well maybe we should work together as a as a group and maybe you should form it into a charity or something and I said great who's going to lead it and nobody said anything so I, I said okay I guess I'm gonna to have to do this now so that's a very long answer to um, to your question but in essence since 2000 when we founded the charity in 2007 i've basically been working initially as the chair of the charity for 12 years now as just one of the trustees in a voluntary capacity to promote an understanding of human factors in healthcare that's our mission that's what we do um all my time is delivered for free um and i basically the other half of my life is still carrying on with my flying career which is what i'm passionate about no, and that's a really um, fascinating, um, I mean, obviously, uh, tragically sad, but um, that evolution from from that first flying experience, um, when, you were, when you were in that aircraft and you knew that it was wrong, I mean, you presumably didn't have that much training on board, you didn't have that much knowledge, and therefore you were putting all of that faith into into your instructor they clearly know what they're doing and all that sort of but what point did did you did them alarm bells raise to a point of actually you've you'd lost confidence in that instructor or did you lose confidence in the instructor did you just assume that they will get get you out of it completely it was probably when they that we got below the cloud and they, he turned on this course and and I kind of said, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm going to take us back to the airfield below the cloud. But immediately yeah. I recognised where we were, which is unusual. But it was so happened that I also worked, I worked for the MOD at the time as a civil servant. And right. I, actually, I actually worked at the same air base that my flying instructor was an air traffic controller at. Right. And quite near that air base. It wasn't where our plane was based. But he said, so we're going to fly this route. And I knew where we were. And I drove the same road and I drove past the aerial farm. And I knew that this and straight away. So we're talking about two minutes before we reach this aerial farm, maybe. And it was just this rising fear inside me that that I think I just froze, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, terrified. I'm thinking we're going to go straight through this aerial farm. And I didn't I, I have no idea how low we were. But when I looked out the window, it looked really low. And I just thought. He's going to fly us through. What do I? Surely he's going to work it out. And I, I, I couldn't say anything because yeah, I didn't yeah. know what to say. And it was, it was, you know, I was completely powerless. And even if I had, I mean, maybe if I'd said something, he would have recognised it. I think he probably would have done. Um, but I just couldn't get the words out. And I was just like, surely he knows what he's doing. This is, you know, this is crazy. And of course, I didn't have any real skill at that point. I hadn't even been solo. And I I couldn't have just taken control at that stage. Um, and and so it was a, a horrifying ride to what I assumed was my death, basically. <laughs> and it was just a, a miracle that we didn't hit anything. Um, 
And what was interesting is after that, we did manage to land back at our airfield and it's a long story about how it was done. But mm. when we got on the ground, he just turned to me very quietly and said, yeah, I'm sorry. And I didn't know whether to kiss him or kill him. <laughs> yes. But, uh, you know, he'd, he'd saved my life, but he'd also almost killed me in the, the result of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in answer to your question, you know what? I didn't lose faith in him. And he, he actually carried on training me. And a few months later, I got my license. And probably about, I, he's, he's much older than me. He's probably in his 80s now. Uh, but I, I probably see him about once a year, usually in passing at the flight. Okay. Now. Yeah. Uh, and... You know, I think it was a major moment in his life as well because he was a highly experienced individual. Yeah. Uh, but it was, but that's the whole point, you know, in this is that good people, yes, people make a mess of things. And so, how can the science of human factors and ergonomics help us to, to, and it sounds simplistic to say to stop people screwing up because I know that's not how it is. But I think we have to be really. You know, I'm not an HFE expert. Yes, I'm qualified to train crew resource management, mm -hmm. the rules and European rules, uh, but I'm not an expert in human factors and ergonomics. But, you know, I'm constantly reminded by my many academic friends who I have enormous respect for in, in the community who say, Martin, you, you can't equate human factors with human error or human failure. You can't do that. It's a much bigger science than that. Mm. But when you're at the sharp end of a plane or when you're in, you know, putting somebody under the knife in surgery or when you're, you know, driving 120 feet under the ground in a coal mine or you're sitting out there on an oil rig in the middle of the North Sea, you know, the only real question is how on earth can this science help me get it right, avoid mistakes and keep me alive? Yeah. Now, the perspective from the owners of an organisation might be different. They might be thinking, well, how can human factors make things more efficient and save me money? Mm -hmm. It's absolutely that blunt. And and I had a, a I mean, this is I had a fascinating conversation with a colleague of mine. He's a journalist, actually. But his background is as an advertising executive. Right. We were talking about a book around human factors and ergonomics. And uh, but for the general population. Yes. And, you know, we had lots of conversations around the title. And, and in the end, he said to me, it's to it's basically, Martin, it's about how to avoid making mistakes. And I said, yeah, but human factors and ergonomics, he said, I don't care. He said, that's what people will buy into. Yeah. And, and I totally get it. Now, as an academic, you can argue and say, no, 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 it's so much more than that. And yes, it is so much more than that. But it's about what does it do for me? And that's that's where we need to get to in our conversations in healthcare. No, and I think that's that's a really, really important point because we struggle, and I think probably every economics conference I go to, almost every conversation at a bar um, ends up in the almost in the, in the same place as well. What is human factors? And I try and you know the the analogy I give is I, I try and explain what I do to my parents or to you know mem members of extended family who've got nothing to do with what we do at all. 
And, and you keep on having to go back to some sort of analogy. Now, it might be the simple analogy of, you know, designing efficient light switches um, all the way through to, you know, when I say, you know, I've helped design bits of cockpits of aircraft or submarines or whatever. It's like, oh, that's exciting. And the, my children will be there saying, oh, so did you design the entire aircraft? It's like, well, no. Um, we go to the air shows and, the, and we, we they, they point out the typhoons and stuff. And I'm like, no, I've, I've had a, a bit of influence into a bit of it. It's not the entire thing, but it's the... When we turn around and say it's, it's about how we interact with technology, how we how we work together as people, how do how we have organizations, how the psychology of people involved. It's so simple, it's complex. Um, and as you say, it needs that. And as it's a struggle, I think we've got in the entire um, not just the medical domain, I think we've got it throughout the uh, the entire industry is how what what's the what's the elevator pitch? What's the the simple message that we can send home? And everybody's got that different perspective. Um, so yes, yeah, so I think that is um a real real problem that we still have and i still don't think we've got we, we've got it nailed in a, a, at all yeah um, I, heard, I heard you know the conversation um that you had with steve shorrock and steve mm -hmm. i'm a massive fan of his i think he's an absolutely amazing character and my life is much richer for him being part of it uh, but i a conversation recently on twitter actually if you can call it a conversation was about the the you know the nature of human factors and ergonomics and have we got the right title for it yeah i mean from my point of view i don't really care because i'm a user but i think the point that was being made is maybe we should have human factors engineering mm -hmm. we should have human performance not as two almost separate areas but they're all part of the domain yeah but i think when you explain them individually it's probably easier to somebody who's outside the business but i i am you know occasionally i will be involved in something on social media or in conversation a, a real conversation with real people <laughs> and um i'll sometimes say okay I, i'm looking for some examples here of where human factors and ergonomics has has really helped to, you know i need some descriptions some examples to give and then people will say to me oh well martin I, I, there was an academic paper i read a couple of years ago i can't remember who it was by but i think if you search it out you should find something or they'll say yeah a mate of mine's done some stuff for somebody and they did a bit of this and i can't remember exactly but maybe if i give you their email you can contact them and i'm a bit like hey this isn't my problem this is your problem yeah this is yeah. your industry you need to be good at selling it so don't tell me to go and look for a paper that you can't remember. Go and extract the data and put it down on half a side of A4 yeah. and say, this is what we've done. This is how we've, you know, saved lives. This is how we've made it so much more efficient. This is how we've saved money. And I think, you know, if there was one message that all your listeners, anybody in human factors and ergonomics took away from today, it would be to take a piece of A4 paper and just on half of it, write down something you have done that has made a difference that has helped potentially save lives has saved money or has just reduced the probability of something going wrong yeah. and i suspect you can all do that and I, just a very quick example there was a so it's a true story this is in uh, the nhs in England, uh, a patient arrives at A and E. They they're a young male. They've had a fit, which wasn't expected. They didn't have any you know existing uh, medical conditions, um, and basically uh, they were assessed. And what was decided was that they would be discharged, but there would be a, a follow up, a referral for them to see a, a neurologist, and for them to undergo a scan of their brain. Mm -hmm. 
So that was the strategy. Now, there it took six months for that appointment to happen because when they put the information into their computer systems, it then had to be translated by another team onto a bit of paper. It needed to be sent on a phone call. It needed to be put onto another computer system. There were 19 steps to bring that patient with their scan to a neurologist. And it took six months. And by the time they were reviewed, they had an inoperable brain tumor and it was mm -hmm. too late and they lost their life. Yeah. A, a, a team of investigators were brought in and it included some human factors folk. And what they did is they helped redesign the system. So now at the same hospital, if the same thing happened, instead of there being 19 steps to get a neurologist and a scan and a patient together, there are only three. Mm -hmm. That doesn't guarantee it won't happen again. Yeah. What it does do, it remarkably reduces the probability of it happening. And that just one tiny example to me is the magic of what human factors and ergonomics can do. And I, what I really need is anybody engaged in the profession to do the same. And I'm sure you can, you know, I, I, from listening to one of your podcasts, I know you worked on the Harrier, for example. I know you worked on displays and there's a bit of colour change. And, and I mean, I don't know what you would put, for example, about how you would make it, how you would describe how you've made a difference. So maybe that's not the best project to pick on, Barry. I don't know. <laughs> no, it, it's it, that's I think most of the projects, I think you're absolutely right in being able to pull out the essence of what we do and and communicate that in a way because we don't we we always struggle and we we always talk about right we need these case studies and i think you, the way that you put that forward like if anybody if anybody who's listened to this put a comment in the um on on wherever you're listening to it around what your case study is i mean i guess from the harrier example we had a um a, a display that uh, or we put a new system in that upgraded the displays from a color to uh, monochrome to a color display because harry's were monochrome you have any color, color you wanted as long as it was monochrome green um but it had a color display in there and the oh, the ability for us to switch these displays suddenly became apparent and so we could um but the the, the pilots were so overloaded with how did you access how, how could you access this this new system quickly and easily because they had um uh, the hands-on throttle and stick, stick control um so i you had to do almost the equivalent of a control up delete whilst pressing another button with you, with your little pinky um to access this system and get this display to move so we um the work that we did was to try to make this as easily accessible as possible um in order to increase their uh, their situational awareness of what was going on because this system will give them um the awareness of what they're doing where more particularly where everybody else is uh, for their their tactical uh, tactical awareness and so could we improve that quickly and therefore allow them to make re um, make decisions quicker and make more efficient decisions um and and that was um that was really good right until they sold the harrier to the us um just before it went on trial which was slightly annoying but the another good re recent example i think is we've been doing some work around around trenching um about building uh, helping uh, a client build a trenching system and and there's just simple things like they had places where you could put your fingers to lower it into lower these bits of steel into a hole and it wasn't until we sort of pointed out actually you know the ability to trap your fingers in there um it's quite strong because it's it's just the you would naturally think oh i've got a hole there i could put my fingers in there and drop it down the chance of having broken fingers there um was strong it it's a simple you know it's the common sense piece isn't it it's the point now actually that could happen and if we can 
get users to not do that and not stop them from doing as such, you know, because I'm not really necessarily a believer in saying big stop signs. If we design stuff so they don't do that in the first place, then you don't need to restrict them from doing it because you've designed it out. So that's where that human factors engineering piece comes. Um, yeah, yeah. The earlier you get it in, the better it is. And, and what you're doing there, what you're selling to an organization, and if you were looking at another organization, you'd say, this is some work we did. You know, just imagine if people keep on breaking their fingers, what are the health and safety executives mm -hmm. going to say? What are they going to find the organization? What are the claims going to be? What are going to be the lost days in workers? You know, so so this is about saving money, saving from injuries. And and that would be the, the pitch that I'd if you were going to go, for example, if you were offered a role with the um, MHRA, which is the regulatory following the NHS that looks at the device design or somebody like that, then going in and saying, this is what I've done, a completely different industry, but this is about saving money, saving injuries, um, you know, it's efficient for the business, that's what I bring, then that to me is perfect. But I think if you turned up at an interview with the MHRA and say, well, I kind of do human factors and ergonomics, and it's kind of like, it's really interesting stuff, and, and we do quite a bit of this, and we do a little bit of that, and uh, yeah, you have to do all this kind of task analysis, and it's really, they're going to be like, yeah, whatever. We're not interested. Yeah, I'm laughing because. I, yeah, yeah, I'm laughing because that is most the conversations we have on on such a regular basis because we we are just not good at um, succinctly articulating. Because I think in that discussion um, you referred to with with Stephen on, on Twitter, um, he made the point, and I think it's a brilliant point where organisations talk about safety first. Um, you know, businesses talk about safety first. Your safety is my first, is, is our first priority. No, it's not. Yeah. Your first priority because you're a business is the bottom line. We want to keep people safe whilst doing it, because again, that's good for the bottom line. It means you don't you don't have lost hours, you don't have um, you know claims against you, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and you keep people healthy. But this whole safety first culture is slightly um, either naive or um, it's just pulling buzzwords. Uh, for the sake of it, it's because it's not really true. Uh, maybe we need to be a bit more honest. Um, before we get into, into the rest of it, because I really want to talk um, about the Clinical Human Factors Group itself and how you got that specifically running, we're just going to take a, a really quick break. You are listening to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. We wanted to take the opportunity to say thank you for your support. You can help further by rating us through your podcast provider, sharing us through social media, and telling your friends and colleagues. Let's work together in raising awareness of the value in putting users at the center of what we do. And welcome back. And today we're talking with Martin Bromley about uh, the Clinical Human Factors Group. So, Martin, I guess with the experiences that you've, you've been through, um, and I guess without put, being a bit blasé about it, a lot of people go through the experiences of loss uh, within, within, you know, in, in hospital and things like that. So what is it that actually give you that fire to, or not necessarily the fire, but the I guess that that ability, that agency to turn around and say, actually, you could make a real difference. Um, because just going to set up a um now really well renowned charity about this, um, that's not everybody's first port of call. So what made you feel you could do that in the first place? Um, I think I, I probably recognized that I was in a unique position in that I'd been I I worked in a domain where 
you know, to me and to my colleagues, we talk about human factors related stuff all the time. Mm. And literally just yesterday, I had a, a flying colleague of me talking about something that happened. And he said to me, Martin, this is all about human factors what he was describing to me. That was his words. Mm -hmm. So it's the stuff we talk about, the stuff we think about, the stuff we're examined on all the time, and it's perfectly normal. Uh, and I can, uh, I could, for example, take some form of accident report and I could show it to any pilot anywhere in the world and say, talk me through this. And they're gonna use very similar language to me. Mm -hmm. They're gonna have a similar understanding in general terms. Yep. Yet in healthcare, when, uh, if I was to do the same, well, first of all, I wouldn't find any accident reports because they never published them at the time. Um, and secondly, people therefore wouldn't have a language of disaster, so they wouldn't have a language of what success looks like and human performance and human factors and all that sort of stuff. And it was as if the science, a, a major science that impacts aviation, and nuclear and rail and, uh, you know, all those domains has just passed by. It's a bit like <laughs> saying, did you know you don't have any accountants in the NHS? Right. They don't understand. They don't understand that stuff. And that would be like, that's really stupid and bizarre. But that's what it felt like to me. Mm -hmm. And I suddenly realized that because this stuff is normal to me, and because I'd had this personal disaster, that maybe I couldn't walk away because and people have said to me, you know, is this something about honoring Elaine's memory or something like that? And it's like, no, she's dead. That's right. it. It's gone. But, you know, I've now remarried. Uh, I've inherited two extra children and so I have a family of four children and a, a wife and I have my brother and all that and and you know at some point in the future we will all be exposed to health care mm -hmm. we'll all have to go in for a procedure or we'll all be in a hospital ward or something like that and I want to know that I've done everything I can and I'm possibly in a unique position to just start something going and that's where I was in 2007 and I didn't really you know, the irony was, is at the time, I didn't want to form a charity. I didn't yeah. want anything to be official. I just wanted to maybe ask a few awkward questions, do a few talks, and then walk away and leave it. And the more involved I got, uh, and I did I did make the comment once to Jim Rees, and I said, actually, you know, come on, this isn't rocket science. And I think that was probably a bad thing to say to him. <laughs> actually not what it is. Um, uh, but I, I, I was... I didn't realize how much work there was to be done and how much work there is still to be done. Um, so I, I, I guess, and I, you kind of find yourself in these positions in life. And, and that's my problem. I think at the minute after all these years is that, you know, as I said to you earlier, my passion is aviation. That's where I want yep. to spend my time. I want to spend time with my family. I want to do all the stuff I enjoy, but there is an element of me that says, but there are still problems. And, and literally yesterday I had a um, someone from healthcare on the phone for an hour and she was describing the bullying culture that she's experiencing in an NHS trust. Right. NHS trust, by the way, that it would now appear is probably having major, major issues around babies and mothers dying. Right. And this has been a problem in many other NHS trusts. This particular trust has managed to stay below the radar so far, but hopefully not for very long. And and I was just getting so angry listening to her as she was describing what she's experiencing. She's trying to bring the data forward and say to people, this is the issues. This is what we're seeing. And people are just denying it. People are just saying, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. 
and and so you can debate is that human factors and ergonomics is that culture is it safety whatever i don't know but i still feel there's something that i can do that is of value and that's um that's so powerful because like i say you're bringing it you're coming from a perspective but you've still got that um almost that outside view because you're leaning very much into the aviation work that you've done um and your uh, your passion that way and you're applying that to that to the medical domain so i guess one thing i when i talk to sort of different clinicians and um you know around the piece we see they seem to obsess to a certain extent around crm that we equate human factors uh human factors engineering and the breadth that it is purely with crm but yet talking to yourself you seem to uh, recognize the, the broader um, application however we describe it how do you how how do you communicate that with with clinicians because i i've got to admit it's something i struggle with because they, they they immediately make that um um that 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 relationship and it's a struggle to break it at times well i think i i have to take responsibility for that uh because i was the one who started and bear in mind the conversation we had earlier about elaine's death Mm. you know largely what i saw were all the um the, the kind of behaviors yeah what i didn't really see and what i didn't talk about was the the equipment issues they had but also i didn't tend to think of these as being systems so for example why hadn't they thought about some what ifs why hadn't they briefed about the major threats before they started where there was no system and protocol and process for doing that yeah yeah so but I think early on, I was talking a lot about non-technical skills and behaviours and crew resource management. And there were already some players in the field that were doing that sort of thing anyway. So I probably gave them a voice. So the first work I was doing was about that. When we said yeah, yeah. it was about that. And, and quite rightly, I got called out for it recently, a paper from the Royal College of Anaesthetists led by some brilliant people, including the chair of my own charity, Chris Frook um uh, fiona kelly kevin fong characters like that um and it was pointed out that actually yeah we you know the what martin did was great but actually what it did is it focused us too much on this and not enough on the systems so i think first of all you know that that's you know my fault but i think the second thing to say is that if i'd gone in in 2005 and 2006 and started talking about you know, the design of equipment and the packaging of drugs and all yeah. that sort of stuff. If you're a doctor working in an A&E in Exeter, you would have looked at me and said, I can't do anything about that, Martin. Yeah, so yeah. That's not my problem. Yeah. And if I'd gone to the, the top of the NHS at the time, well, I, I, I didn't have a voice to get to the top of the NHS at the time, although I've done since, and started talking about this stuff, they would have said, well, who the hell are you? And what's this about? You know, we don't understand this stuff. So I had to find a place where human factors and ergonomics had meaning. Mm, yes. So for me, where it has meaning is on the pointy end of a jet going at close to the speed of sound and making decisions and, and leadership. And it's all about the non-technical skills because actually where I work is really well designed. Yeah. And that's what, you know, if you've got if you work in an amazingly well-designed workplace with amazingly well-designed equipment and processes, you don't notice them. Yes. So what I talk about with my colleagues all the time is about, as I say, the non-technical skills and the briefings, threats and culture. That That's what we talk about because that's what we can influence. Yes. In the same way, when I go to a clinician back in 2005, 2006 and talk about this, then I can talk about what can you do as a clinician to make a difference. Yeah. And so that's, if you like, the gateway 
into human factors and ergonomics. Now, what has happened is that now we've got clinicians who are talking about systems and have been for a number of years. And my charity talks a lot about systems as well. OK, but but we try and do it from a point of view of saying, you know, thinking of the audience. So, mm. for example, CHFG, we produced a set of e-learning. Uh, for NHS staff, actually for healthcare staff anywhere in the world about human factors. Uh, but the first package that we produced, which is about an hour's worth of learning, does not mention the term human factors once. It's aimed at the 1.3 million people in the NHS and other healthcare organisations, the vast majority of Zoom, have very little power. So you can take a receptionist in a GP's practice, okay? You'd say, they're not really important, they don't do anything safety critical. Yes, they do. So, for example, a receptionist scans on the notes of a Mr Smith and scans them on from a, a recent cancer biopsy um, and forgets about it. And then, you know, a year later, Mr. Smith dies because actually the notes were scanned on the wrong Mr. Smith. Yeah, yeah. Receptionist is in a safety critical role. OK. And so what we needed to do was to produce some learning here, which made it real to that individual. It got them to think about not about human factors, but how they behave with patients, how they interrelate with each other, how they identify ambiguity and resolve it. You know, OK, it's a minor ambiguity, but actually that could be safety critical. So you go and talk to somebody, how you speak up, but also how you listen down to other people. And so for us, the focus is very much on making it real. And at every stage, we have to make it real for the people we're dealing with. Now, now because we've got really brilliant people in healthcare who've been really passionate about the CRM side, we've now got a lot of them who've gone on to do masters in human factors and ergonomics. A lot yeah. have done that, by the way. A lot have become members or associate members or whatever you call it, the Chartered Institute. And a lot of them are really keen on systems, but there is still a problem. Professor Mary Dixon Woods is another hero of mine, does amazing work at the, this institute in Cambridge. OK, and they did a study about quality improvement in the NHS. And what happens in quality improvement is you'll say to a doctor, right, as part of your training, you need to do a QI project in your department. And what happens is they do this brilliant QI project. But they can only go so far because a lot of the stuff they're dealing with, maybe it's particular purchasing of, of equipment, they actually can't influence. And sometimes the hospital can't influence because it's actually, you know, there are rules, for example, when you look at GMC referrals to doctors for, for, for potential negligence and you say to the GMC, well, why the hell do you keep doing it? They say it's because the law of the land requires us to it's actually written into the law mm. so you can't just think you can go in and change a little system here without realizing that there's a big system here that actually you have to influence at a lot of levels and so for me the sustainability of human factors and ergonomics is about getting it into the people who do this stuff day to day in whatever form and then as they go up the system and as they can influence the system we can then have a greater voice towards the top of the NHS. And I talk about the NHS, Barry, and I just want to be aware, you know what, the culture in the National Health Service is exactly the culture you find in American hospitals. It's the same culture you find in Indian hospitals. It's the same culture as you find in general practice in Australia or wherever you are. Mm. Healthcare culture across the world and systems are very, very similar. Yeah. And it's and I think the that's the point there around communicating the message to the people who can change and only you know giving them what they um what they can change 
because you're right, a doctor can't, um, or a nurse or a receptionist can't redesign the system that they use to scanning in notes or the, um, you know, the big one that seems to be hitting at the moment is around um, the designing of um, drug packaging and to, to stop you being able to, um, you know, they can't do that. And I think that, you know, talking about them, about the the agency things that they can change um, is hugely important. Again, cycles back to the, almost the, the common thread of this thing is around how we best uh, influence people um, using using what we do. Um, when you mentioned the um, the, uh, the the training that you've developed, but look at the human practice group as a whole. What do you think that what, what, if if you had to pin your uh, your badge on one, two, or a few successes? What what are the big hitters that you that you remember and keep on going back to? I would say first of all, it's about getting human factors and ergonomics, systems thinking, and just culture thinking as part of the policy in and, and consideration in the nhs more broadly but also in other healthcare systems i would say it's become a major part of thinking amongst many senior clinicians and has changed practice for the better mm-hmm. um, i would say very specifically we brought human factors and ergonomics right to the very political top of the NHS to Secretary of State of Health level. I've actually brought in a human factors and ergonomics expert into a room with uh, the then Secretary of State for Health. Um, and I would say it's about creating a healthcare safety investigation branch. Now, right. Susie, on her, mm-hmm. on her podcast, talked about HSIP because she works for them. Um, I had to laugh actually when I listened to it because Susie said, well, they kind of looked around and thought maybe we should be doing investigations like they do in aviation. So that's what we kind of do. And in a kind of a sentence, she summarized what was probably about 10 years of pain and heartache for lots of us. But she said <laughs> the right thing. Yeah. Lovely to hear her say it because it's kind of an accepted thing that we now do. But actually, for me, I think recognizing that there wasn't this language of disaster there wasn't this interest in safety back in 2005 so how the hell do we do that well the answer is we have to have really good quality investigations which draw out the lessons and brings in human factors experts and so getting healthcare safety investigation branch launch which i helped create with a number of people um i wasn't leading it by the way but I was certainly helping initiate it. And thanks to the people like Cranfield University and Graham Braithwaite, who were incredible support on that and the late great Helen Muir, um, is that we managed to set up a system and specifically it had human factors and ergonomics experts as salaried parts of the team. Mm-hmm. One of whom, Tracy Hurley, has now gone on to an even bigger role in NHS England. Um, but, but the point being that that's that's been a big win, I think. And you're seeing the Americans talking about doing the same now. They don't mention they've been inspired by the UK and Norway, who were the first of this stuff. And and again, I've just got to say, you know, the amount of work that's gone into all of that is just incredible. You know, we've had to be, I've been involved in helping change primary legislation um, that's been going through Parliament. I've had to push at various doors at the House of Lords to get things to be amended and changed. There's an enormous amount of work that goes into this. And probably the final thing is the fact that we have, we know we have inspired clinicians around the world and we have directly saved lives because I get the emails still mm. from the doctor who say, hey, guess what? This is what happened to me. This is what I did as a result of, you know, the work that you folk are doing. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that, does it? To be, it must be a, 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 a almost feel like normal privilege to get them sort of emails. 
um, to to have that direct almost what I would call the flash to bang thing of, you know, you've done something and there's the output. Um, that's got to be ama an amazing feeling. But if I'm if I'm going to be, um, we still have these conversations on social media and things about that there is still so much more to do, um, notwithstanding the enormous amount of work that you've done. What's the challenges? Where, where, where do you see the, the the next challenges? What, what's what's top of the agenda that you're trying to hit at the moment? It's doing more of it, basically. It's spreading it more. You know, mm -hmm. say aviation, everything in healthcare is ten times more, ten times bigger budgets, ten times more people, ten times more different specialities, ten times more facilities, and so you've got an enormous cultural change to make, which we yeah. know we had to go through in aviation. So the top five challenges are getting human factors and ergonomics more into the system and getting HFE people at senior levels. So mm -hmm. I talked about the MHRA, but you can talk about any of the national bodies in England. You can talk about it the same in the US or Germany or wherever, it doesn't matter. We need to get HFE people in at the very top of those organizations. So the challenge for me, and we've talked about this in the charity, is I would love us to loan an HFE expert for a couple of days. So in other words, let's take the MHRA as a great example. Okay, they regulate medical devices. It would be lovely for us to say to them, hey, here we've got Barry Kirby. Okay, you don't know him, he's an HFE expert. He's just gonna come in for a couple of days and meet with all your top people. And when you get there, Barry, they'll look at you and they'll say, what do we do? And you say, well, I'll tell you what I did on the Harrier. Yeah, yeah. That's the sort of stuff I bring to your organization. I can save you money, I can save you lives, I can make it more efficient. So show me some of the stuff that you're going dealing with at the minute. And just for a couple of days, you get an insight to what they're doing and you raise some questions. OK, and I would love it if the CHFG could pay for somebody like you to go and do that for a couple of days. Say to the MHRA, because I think the problem is, is if you suddenly got a job with the MHRA, they wouldn't know what to do with you. Yes. Yeah. And you would look at the system and think, I don't even know where to start. So I think it has to be a gentle. And I'd love to do that for lots of the big organizations in healthcare at a very senior level. And I know that Steve Schrock talks about this all the time. He's absolutely bang on with this. We need to do a little more. We are seeing some HFE experts getting into hospitals. Actually, it's been going on a long time, by the way. Mm. The very first one I know of was a complete and utter disaster uh, because the individual went in and looked at the hospital and says, your systems are all completely wrong. And yeah. Change everything. And they went, looked at her and said, but, you know, so, for example, Sue Deakin, who's a consultant surgeon in, in Suffolk, she's, she's managed to get um, what's called a band eight uh, position for an HFE expert to their trust. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens at that place. And I think we'll learn a lot from it. Sue's one of our trustees. Yeah. But I also believe that we need to be aiming much higher as well. So that's another one. And I would say we, we just also, and going back to my own area of kind of human performance, non-technical skills, we need to start defining the good behaviours we want to see across healthcare. Mm -hmm. If people did all these hundred or so behaviours, which is about how many we use in aviation in our competency, by the way, if people did all of these things, then it would really help reduce accidents. Because when we look at accidents, we know that these are the behaviours that people don't do. Yeah. And actually finding those and being more succinct, even in the NHS constitution. So things like bullying would become a, a, a talked about issue that would be not acceptable. And these are the behaviours that constitute bullying, because I don't think most of the bullies in the NHS, and this is a massive problem, actually realise the behaviours they are using. Yeah, yes. It constitutes bullying. And you can say, well, again, that's not really human factors and ergonomics, Martin. I, I 
Yeah. A lot of our safety comes from an aviation where bullying is virtually unheard of. In fact, I can't even think of a scenario apart from one in the last 23 years. And that was dealt with so quickly. Yeah, yeah. Healthcare, this is just normal. We, it just happens. And that's why we're getting babies dying in maternity units and places like that. Yeah. But those are the kind of things. And I've kind of fired it and downloaded at you. I just want to do more. Yeah. Is where I want to get to. No, it's certainly, I think it's it's so uh, motiva motivating and brilliant to see that enthusiasm coming through for just wanting to do the right thing, I guess. the um, And and it's, I think it's fantastic because it's a, you're basically pushing that same message that um, way more eloquently that, um, that I've been trying to, to push that we can do so much more. And I think some of the, the things that you've highlighted uh, within this, particularly around, the, you know, I think it all almost revolves around communication of various sorts um, that we need to, we as a profession need to step up to. And maybe this is a, a role for the CIHF here as well is to is to um, you know help us do that because you're right we we spend a lot of time writing beautiful academic papers and and things like that but actually we need to make it count. Um, All those academic paint papers are important. Yes, yeah. you've got to have the science behind it. Yeah, um, and I think the future for HFE is really great, but I think when you go into I hesitate to say the real world, but when you go to an organization, you know, you, you bring that academic stuff in your head, but but you need to talk in the real world for them. Yeah. So we talked about the sort of things that you're going to go, you, you the, the big things you want to hit. What does the next 12 months hold? What's it what's on the what's on the calendar for the next 12 months in terms of big events that you think that you're going to be doing? Or is it just crazy? Um... You know what? I've got no idea. My life is pretty crazy. I'm stepping back more from the clinical right. In other words, I'm less hands-on, uh, which is good because I think I was probably not great as a chair. Um, it's much better trusting an anaesthetist to run the group. But we have some great people in the group, um, you know, again, ranging from people like Rona Flynn, Patrick Waterson um, from, from the HFE side, um, you know, through to, again, I mentioned Sue Deakin and characters like that who are, you know, great at what they do in, in their clinical world, but also, you know, a lot of these people have qualifications now in human factors. They've done much, yeah. things like that. So for, but for me personally, I would say the next 12 months, I want to be alive. I want to be happy and I want to continue creating meaning in my life. Just before Barry gets to the final three, my name's Nick Rome. Let me tell you about this. Technology in our world is evolving at a phenomenal pace. And keeping up with what that means in the Human Factors world can be challenging. That's where Human Factors Cast comes in. Human Factors Cast is a weekly podcast that highlights and breaks down stories that are chosen by you, the Human Factors community. New York State is giving out hundreds of robots as companions for the elderly. Buttons in cars are safer and quicker to use than touchscreen. A prototype just achieved a major milestone that actually fits the description of a flying car. The show provides perspective based on experiences from different domains and different industries. We even cover some of the hottest conferences in the field. On this episode, we're recapping EHF, Ergonomics and Human Factors Conference, Neuroergonomics Conference, Human Factors and Ergonomics Society, uh, UXPA International. Join me, Nick Rome. And me, Barry Kirby. Every Friday morning when Human Factors Cast drops on YouTube and your favorite podcast directory. And remember, it, it depends. depends. And now I'm going to send it back over to Barry for the final three. We've talked a bit about academic and stuff, but what if you had a 
to pick a book or a paper that you use and you keep on going back to repeatedly now it doesn't have to be technical it could be a fiction book but do you have do you have that constant thing that you go back to all the time um i would there's probably a couple of them sadly one i can't remember the title um but it's a wonderful book about acceptance commitment theory Right. Which is a a lot of people have heard of CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy. Yeah. It's a really strong evidence base. ACT also has a strong evidence base, as acknowledged by the NHS. And it's actually uh, it's a book about confidence that I regularly reread. And actually, confidence isn't quite the right title because it's really about how to approach life generally. Mm -hmm. It's a lot about process, not outcome and all that sort of stuff. So that for, for one is uh, um, a kind of book I reread. But the other that is worth mentioning is CAP 737, CAP 737, which is the Human Factors Handbook in Aviation. Right. When I say Human Factors Handbook, it's about non-technical skills and behaviours. Steve Jarvis did the majority of the work on it, and I just refer to it so often. It's absolutely brilliant. So if you could, if you go back to um, your, your younger Martin and pick any point um, that suits you, what advice would you, would you give your younger self? Hey, life can go in all sorts of ways. Just accept it and go with it. Um, change what you can and what you can't change, you can't. Fair enough. And then, so you've talked about, you know, you're still, um, you know, enjoying your career and things like that. When you get to the end of your career, um, retirement, how would you like to be re remembered? Um, as somebody who did their best and somebody who tried to make a difference and hopefully just a nice guy. Well, hopefully the um, just from what you've done so far, then that's almost um, almost guaranteed. Um, but thank you, Martin, for being so generous with your time today and sharing your experiences. If anybody wants to get in touch with you and find out more or offer their services or whatever to um, to the charity or to the work you're doing, how would they go about it? The best thing is always to email the charity. We've got a, an info uh, address, which is info at chfg.org. And that goes through to uh, business manager, Rebecca O'Leary. And, and basically, I, I would always say, just get in touch and say, yeah, this is what I do. This is how I might be able to help um, and let us know sort of thing. And, and I would say we get a lot of people getting in touch. So I would so I would always say to people, um, we would in, because often we just don't have the processing capacity with the number of people who do put their name forward which is a big frustration of us but as i say with a couple of exceptions we're all volunteers yeah. so i would say it would be helpful if you could also say something actually you know i'm in touch with this doctor or i'm in touch with this organization so this is what i am going to work on now mm -hmm. or or whatever so if by all means kind of get in touch and say hey i'm here but it would be lovely if you got in touch and said hey i'm here but just to let you know this is what i'm already doing in healthcare or this is where i'm trying to get an inroad into healthcare and um so just you know with an expectation that we'll stay in touch basically and we do we do get to a point where sometimes we'll launch a new project or something we're currently looking at our plan for the next few years at the moment and it might be we suddenly start a project off and we suddenly think we could really do with an hfe person on who knows about this this and this yeah. and and we'll go to our list of you know kind of people who put their name forward and maybe go back to them and say hey can you help us with this so that would be the best thing but just generally sign up to the charity and by sign up i mean it doesn't cost anything yeah and that's deliberate 
is literally just go online and agree to receive emails and you'll get an email from us occasionally um, and have a look at the website and um, yeah just just kind of connect with us that way perfect and hopefully there'll be now a an onslaught of HV people who want who want to get involved um, before we go, um, just a quick reminder to everybody that the Ergonomics and Human Factors 2023 is in a couple of months. You can find out more and buy tickets at ergonomics.org.uk. The topics being presented include design, incident investigation, technology, automation, behaviour and non-technical skills, as well as some fascinating keynotes from uh, Dr. Mark Young, Professor Siri Wick, uh, Mark Loudon and Professor Sarah Sharples. There's also going to be the annual dinner. But actually, quite possibly the most exciting news is that the quiz and team challenge is back in all of its glory. Given in the past, we've had to answer questions whilst dressing team members up as knights, building domino runs out of paper and taking part in murder mystery. The mind boggles as to what Tina Worthy is going to come up with for this year. So I hope to see some of you there. But thank you all for listening and for watching, uh, depending on the channels that you're using to do this. Um, please do share your questions and comments and thoughts through the channel that you're engaging with, be, be that YouTube, um, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, whatever. Um, and we look forward to seeing you all um, at the next episode. Thank you for listening to 1202, the Human, the Human Factors, Factors Podcast. Podcast. Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions, and comments. You can contact us on social media such as Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook at 1202 Podcast. See you next See you time. Next. And remember, it's more than just common sense.